Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, here as always with John Mitchell. This week, we're going to be talking about the coaching carousel in our first segment before we dive into a look at some uh, players that have declared early for the NFL draft. And in our final segment, as you all might expect, we'll be talking a lot about the national championship matchup between Clemson and LSU. Before we get started, though, John, uh, great to talk with you again. Hope you had a a good New Year's Day watching football. And uh, as we've gotten through the rest of the bowl calendar, uh, now all we've got left is the national championship game, and then it's the long offseason again. Uh, how's that sitting with you? You know, it, it's pretty sad, to be honest. It, the, it always feels like, obviously, the offseason takes much longer to get through than the season does. But we do have one hell of a national championship game sitting there waiting for us. So it's hard to be too upset this early. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's one of those bittersweet moments where at least we get to go out with a bang. So, <laughs> Unfortunately, though, for some coaches... They went out with a bang. They're they're done. And in eight out of the ten FBS conferences, we'll see at least one new head coach this year. Uh, out of the Power Five, the only league that went untouched was the Big 12. Out of the Group of Five conferences, the only league that won't see a new coach next year is the MAC. So we're going to see a lot of swirl happening around college football. It looks like we'll see new head coaches at 10, 18 different places this next year. So it should be an interesting uh, 2020 football season in that regard. What did you see as the, you know, biggest change, the craziest change uh, out there in the college football world? Yeah, and one thing, too, to add, Zach, it, this coaching carousel hasn't stopped spinning yet, you know, because Mississippi State – is still looking for a head coach as of the recording of this podcast. You could see a couple other guys maybe jump to even NFL openings that are coming up. Obviously, Lincoln Riley's been linked to several jobs, so you never know. Um, we could still have some, some stuff happening. I think the, the biggest one so far that was the biggest surprise, at least, was Chris Peterson stepping down, uh, Washington moving quickly to name defensive coordinator Jimmy Lake the new head coach. But that was the one that was the most – surprising but I think we talked about that probably enough at this point um in the SEC uh recently Mississippi State deciding to fire Joe Moorhead after just two seasons was um pretty sudden and pretty unexpected I would say I you could kind of tell that the fan base wasn't happy Moorhead always kind of felt like a, a square peg in a round hole in Starkville really out of his element and stuff like that, getting down to Mississippi. Um, so it was always kind of an odd marriage to begin with. Um, Moorhead's probably not going to be out of work for long. There'll be plenty of schools ready to give the offensive reins over to him. It'll be interesting in which direction Mississippi State goes. Uh, but that one was odd. Uh, they also, this carousel brought us Lane Kiffin back to power, back to the Power Five in college football, so that's a good thing. Uh, if nothing else in his personality being out there is always always makes the game more fun with how he approaches everything. And, you know, as we saw with Hugh Freeze, there's really potential 
to win big in Oxford uh, with Ole Miss. So be interested to see if Kiffin can get the Rebels recruiting much like Hugh Freeze did, and if he can, they could really become a contender in the SEC West. Yeah, that whole Ole Miss situation is really interesting to me. I've definitely been on Twitter talking about this, um, so if any of you out there follow me and have followed along with my uh, thoughts on this, you'll know where I'm coming from. But I found it really kind of disturbing that they turned to to uh, DJ Durkin as one of their, uh, their co-coordinators on that staff. Um, Lane Kiffin obviously trying to uh, get himself somebody who has been an ace recruiter in the past. But you got to think that pretty much every SEC school is licking its chops at the opportunity to bring up Jordan McNair on basically with any recruit that they're competing with the Rebels. Uh, I, I personally find it absolutely abhorrent that Durkin is back and for people who talk about reading the independent reports that came out at Maryland um the fact is those reports did not exonerate Durkin or absolve him of any responsibility for McNair's death or for the culture that developed around the Terrapins program when he was the head coach there and uh well he you know he he got away without any charges And so there's that, but it's really just curious to me how the NCAA is allowing him to get back on an, on an, uh, a college football sideline. I'm pretty much flummoxed. If there was one thing that absolutely surprised me about this cycle, it was, you know, seeing a name like that pop back up. And that's not to say that he's the only one out there that raises some eyebrows. Obviously, Greg Schiano returning back to Rutgers um, does that as well. But I, for my, you know, for what it's worth, I didn't see any hire that that was more concerning from a fan standpoint and from a player safety standpoint than seeing. Durkin get back into the college football ranks. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to a, a thing we've talked about for years and football being, you know, sacrosanct when it comes to winning being above everything in any kind of program, above player safety, above moral values and all that. We saw it a year ago in the coaching carousel when Liberty jumped to hire Hugh Freeze after um, – the SEC had blocked several teams from hiring him as a coordinator. That's where he ended up landing. So, I mean, I totally agree with you. I, I'm a little surprised the backlash hasn't been worse for the Durkin hire to the point that maybe Ole Miss's, you know, athletic director or president of the university stepped in and blocked the hire. Even Like, that's something that I was kind of expecting in the last couple of days. Yeah, especially because we saw the same thing happen with Shiano in the past. Um, and in, in, you know, in his defense, nobody died under his watch. Um, the Durkin situation is just so far removed from any concept of, of worrying about the players and worrying about them as the paramount concern, which we hear so often from the NCAA and its member institutions. 
switching switching gears a bit looking at these hires i think one of the other things that i found really interesting was just how quickly some people landed back on their feet so obviously willie taggart was done by early november at florida state after less than two years with that program and he'll be back on the sidelines with florida atlantic next year um kind of coming full circle back to conference usa after he really started making his name for himself at western kentucky and then you also have steve adazio who was you know let go by boston college before their bowl game and he you know he landed the job at colorado state so uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting thing to see. You know, good coaches are still good coaches, even if their fit doesn't necessarily work at the school they were at. So, I, you know, I think in that regard, seeing Taggart and Adazio, the two coaches that were let go by ACC schools this year, um, landing back on their feet says as much about where the ACC is at as where the what those coaches were able to do with their programs and their their time with them. Yeah, I honestly hated the Adazio hire by Colorado State. There were several other names involved in that coaching search that would have been better fits to me. I just don't really see how that's really going to work for the Rams. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like, I, I do like the fact that Willie Taggart's going to be back, and I think he found a really good opportunity. Florida Atlantic certainly in a better spot during this coaching carousel than they were when they lured Lane Kiffin to Boca. So Taggart's picking up a program that should be in decent shape, as we saw in their blowout bowl victory over SMU, even without Kiffin. They still look really, really good. I was also interested, Zach, in a, in a higher in the Mountain West um, UNLV going out and grabbing Oregon offensive coordinator Marcus Arroyo. Um, I thought that was a really smart hire. I think he's really got the the recruiting acumen that could really, you know, we've heard about UNLV being a potential sleeping giant in the group of five ranks for years now because they have such a fertile base um, with prospects and stuff, particularly coming out of Bishop Gorman High School in there in Las Vegas. So if he can hit up there and he can kind of, you know, close the gate around the city and stuff like that and recruit. I think UNLV has got a lot of potential as a program to really, you know, become one of the elite group of five schools. We've seen them do that in other sports back when the running rebels in the nineties and basketball. So, you know, I was really impressed with that hire. I thought that was one of the more under, under the radar hires of the uh, coaching carousel so far. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that was a really smart hire by by UNLV, especially given the fact that they'll be going into a new stadium in this next year. Um, you combine all of that together, you get a coach who's you know got an offensive pedigree, can can light up the night in Sin City, and uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think they really do have a chance to make waves in the Mountain West in the next couple years as he gets things online there. Now you've got the Raiders coming to Las Vegas as well. That'll only help. Exactly. And, you know, the fact that they'll be sharing that stadium with the, you know, that's being built for the Raiders is is absolutely huge. And that's going to be just a boon for recruiting there as well. Um, getting out of Sam Boyd Stadium into a more modern facility. 
staying in the the Mountain West quickly, one other thing I found really interesting was the late announcement by Jeff Tedford that he was stepping down at Fresno State. Um, he's, you know, obviously did a great job of getting Fresno State back into uh, Mountain West contention, uh, getting them to look as good as they did back in the days of Pat Hill and playing all comers across the country. Um, the one big, sh- you know, it, it, it's really a shame to see a coach have to step down due to health reasons. But at the same time, you know, Tedford is 58. He's had heart issues in the past, um, back when he was in the NFL as a coordinator with the Buccaneers. And, you know, obviously it's great that he's able to look out for his health. That's, that's you know, priority number one. So you can never really fault a guy for taking that stance. At the same time, it leaves a bit of a vacuum there in the, the West division of the Mountain West. Um, and this past season, we saw that that division is definitely a winnable, winnable loop there. And so it'll be really interesting to see how things move forward there with uh, Kalen DeBoer taking over the program. Uh, I think that's one that I really want to keep an eye on, especially with, you know, four new coaches in that conference this this upcoming season. Yeah, definitely an unexpected one. Best wishes to to Tedford. Um, He's been one of my favorite coaches back to his days. Um, at Cal, a lot of fun teams he coached in Berkeley. So definitely best wishes. Wouldn't surprise me if he ends up coaching again, maybe maybe takes the Bob Stoops route and finds either the XFL or the next pop-up professional football league with less stress, but you can still coach ball. You kind of see stuff like that with people in his position. So obviously best wishes to him going forward. Definitely. Well, on that note, is there anything else that really stuck out to you that you want to make sure we touch on before we go to our first break, John? Um, I thought it, one other thing I thought was interesting is that from the standpoint that, you know, what we've talked about and what's been talked about part of Clemson's biggest run and biggest re, one of their bigger reasons they've been one of the more dominant teams has been their coaching staff continuity. So I thought it was interesting that someone finally pulled a Clemson assistant uh, with South Florida going in and grabbing Clemson's co-offensive coordinator, Jeff Scott, to take over the program. I thought that was a pretty good hire by the Bulls. I think there's a lot of untapped potential in Tampa for that program. There's no, there's really no reason they can't be equals with Central Florida at the moment. So I thought it was interesting. It will be interesting to see what Clemson does and if you know there's chances for that staff to continue getting pillaged in recent years because that's what happens when you're at the top, you know, people start wanting your assistance and stuff. So it was interesting that maybe the first domino finally fell on that for Clemson. Yeah, it's a great point. They've, they've been really lucky in being able to keep the band together as you will. And uh, yeah, South Florida got themselves a really great hire there and really does have the potential to get the bulls back to the level they were under, you know, Willie Taggart when they were, you know, when the war on I-4 in 2017 was for all the marbles in that division. And it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, we've talked about different fertile recruiting grounds, and you, you don't get much more fertile than the Sunshine State. And, you know, playing in an NFL stadium there in Tampa and, 
you know, playing in a, a completely winnable conference that's, you know, improving in quality year over year, but at the same time is right there, just ripe for a team like USF. Uh, I, I think he does have all the tools there in place to be successful and uh, for South Florida to move on from the Charlie Strong experiment. Well, on that note, everybody, we're going to take our first quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to shift gears from coaches to players, specifically those uh, underclassmen or players with at least one more year of eligibility left who have decided to forego it and enter the NFL draft. We'll be talking about that right after this break. Stay tuned. Welcome back after the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We talked about the coaching carousel in the past segment. Now we're turning our focus to early entries into the NFL draft. As the bowl season winds down, we always see the dominoes start to fall in terms of players declaring, putting their name into the hat for NFL teams uh, to look at as possible draft picks this spring. At this point, we have 75 names that have come out already uh, declared for the draft, and I'm sure, you know, as the next couple weeks move on uh, toward the late January uh, deadline for declaring, um, we'll certainly see a couple of more names come out. But at this point, we've got 75 names on the list at the time we're recording right now. And I just kind of want to go through this, like... uh, you know, position by position and kind of look at some of these big names that we see coming out. Um, obviously, the the biggest position for, for any draft discussion is going to be quarterbacks. And you obviously are familiar with one of the quarterbacks that, that's opted to come out. Uh, Tua Tagovailoa decided not to come back to Alabama this year. Uh, as we saw in their uh, win over Michigan, that shouldn't be too much of a problem for the Crimson Tide coming into next season. Uh, the way Mac Jones has been playing the past few games. And uh, so, it, you know, I, I think he obviously inserts himself as one of those those big names that's going to gonna have first-round potential. At the same time, I thought it was really interesting. You know, there are only two other quarterbacks that came out. We've got Jordan Love from Utah State, who's coming out as a redshirt junior, and then Jacob Eason, the transfer who went from Georgia to Washington. Um, do you think it was wise for these two guys to to forego that last year of eligibility, John? I do from the standpoint that I think this quarterback class is relatively weak. You know, I think everyone knows Joe Burrow is the top prospect in this class. Uh, that would probably be debatable if Tua Tungavailoa hadn't had the health issues he's had, uh, particularly with the hip injury. Uh, but Burrow's at the top. After that, I think it's pretty open. I think Tua's probably QB2 right now. Justin Herbert's probably three. But, I mean, after that, you're talking about Love and Eason and guys like that. Maybe Jake Fromm if he declares, but I imagine he's going to wind up back at Georgia. So I think the class is relatively weak, and it's to the point that you've got a guy like Love and a guy like Eason who could still find themselves in the first round, though both didn't have the seasons they were hoping for at their respective schools. So, um, I, you know, Tua's decision was the talk of um, the town for the last 
couple of weeks on whether he would stay or go. There was, um, you know, some indication that he was leaning at one point towards coming back to Tuscaloosa for his senior season, but I think he made the best decision for him. Uh, there really just, to me, didn't seem like any real benefit to him returning to Tuscaloosa for another year when you look at the fact that he's probably going to be the second quarterback off the board this year, and he was probably at best going to be the second quarterback off the board next year, even if he came back with Trevor Lawrence likely being in the 2021 class. It was unlikely that Tua was going to be able to jump him. So, you know, go go now. Avoid the, the potential for being hurt again. The next time he, he takes a snap as a quarterback, it'll be while he's getting paid to do so, and that's kind of fitting for him. And with the quarterback desperate teams in this year's draft, particularly in the top ten, you got teams like the Dolphins, the Chargers, the Panthers, who all pick you know, one after another in the top four, five, six, seven, whatever it is, um, you know, it's it seems pretty unlikely that he falls even out of the top ten at this point. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. Um, obviously, somebody like Tua, who's had injury issues the past couple of years, get paid, get paid. Where do you see Love and Eason going in the next, you know, you obviously know the NFL a little bit better than I do, um, follow it a little bit more closely. So I'm curious, where do you see Love and Eason kind of falling in this picture? I think they're both fringe first-round prospects at the moment, but I think it's a lot going to depend on how they perform, uh, you know, when we get to the scouting combine, when we get to their pro days and stuff like that. I expect Jacob Eason, in the very least, to test really, really well. He's got the prototypical size at 6'4", 6'5", as an NFL quarterback. He's got a great arm, so that's going to look good. So I think Eason has the chance to be a pretty steady riser in this class because of that. Jordan Love, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, usually you tend to like to see a guy who's playing, you know, at a group of five school. You'd like to see his stats maybe look a little bit better than Loves did. You'd like to see him dominate that kind of competition. Um, and, you know, he did have some some struggles with turning the ball over and stuff like that this year in Logan out there. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think they're both fringe first-round guys. Like I said, I don't really – I think the class behind the top three, I think Burrow, two, and Herbert are pretty entrenched. But, you know, like I said, there's a lot of teams that need quarterbacks, so it wouldn't surprise me if both these guys ended up going in the first round. Maybe somebody – trades back into the late first round to take a flyer because they both have a lot of talent. Yeah. I think Eason in particular may have benefited from another season at Washington. Um, Love was probably right to go ahead and come out. I'm not sure one more year at Utah State would have done enough for his draft stock unless maybe he wanted to explore graduate transfer options. That could have been a different story. But I think Eason may have benefited from another year in college to kind of develop because really we don't have a ton of tape on Eason. We have him as a starter for one year and a partial year year at Georgia. So, you know, he's far from a finished product. But I think both guys have a lot of talent. We'll probably end up either in late first round or maybe early second round range. Excellent. That yeah, that was really my biggest question when I saw both of those names on this list is where might they fall in the picture. So I'm really glad you got a good beat on that. Shifting gears, the biggest group of early uh, early exits out of the college ranks falls at the running back position, where we see 16 out of the 75 guys who have declared early fall. Um, 
So out of these 16 running backs, we we obviously have a couple of big names. J.K. Dobbins is in there. Jonathan Taylor's in there. Um, Cam Akers at Florida State. Uh, DeAndre Swift at Georgia. I'm wondering, out of this group, who do you see as the best value for an NFL team? You know, it's interesting. It kind of depends on what you're looking for, I guess, because, you know, a lot of NFL teams won't want to take a first-round flyer on a running back just because they're kind of a dime a dozen when they get into the league. Um, You don't want a guy who's got a ton of tread on his tires and stuff like that coming out. Although I think sometimes that's a bit overblown if you look at, for instance, that was the big knock on Derrick Henry coming out of college was the fact that he had a lot of carries in his junior season at Alabama. And then Derrick Henry in year um, four in the NFL just won the rushing title. So, I mean, I think sometimes we look too much into stuff like that and don't just and, and don't look at the you know character of the actual guy. My favorite running back in this class at the moment is J.K. Dobbins. Um, from Ohio State. I love uh, his ability to cut in the hole and his vision. Um, he's got good burst. He's proven that he can catch passes out of the backfield. I think this class is still incomplete. I think we'll see several other running backs declare. Najee Harris from Alabama hasn't made a decision quite yet. I expect that. Probably even by the time that this podcast is up for you guys to listen to, that he'll be a part of this class as well. Um, I think there's some other interesting prospects in there other than the guys like Jonathan Taylor and J.K. Dobbins and DeAndre Swift. Um, I'd be curious, Zach, who who do you think maybe is more of the undervalued running back in this class that we're going to look back on in, in four or five years and be like, man, how did that guy go so low? You know, there are a couple that I'm really looking at. One is Eno Benjamin from Arizona State. I think he's got the real potential as – uh, you know, a do everything back out of the backfield who can who can take a lot of punishment. I think he could really be a valuable asset, especially as like I, I think he's one that might go a little bit later than people expect, just because of the way Arizona State has ended up the past couple of seasons hasn't really been as deep in the mix in the Pac-12 uh, South. But I think he's one that could really get a good look, and, and if he lands with the right team, is a, a real beast in the making. Another one I think is really interesting is Tyson Williams from BYU, uh, the South Carolina transfer who came out to Provo this year and then got injured early in the season. So the fact is, you know, he he didn't get a lot of reps as a Cougar, and uh, you know, but there's tape on him from South Carolina. Obviously, having been injured, uh, you know in the first half of the season this year, he doesn't have a lot of tread on the tires coming into the NFL. And I think if he's, you know, if his rehab all goes to plan and he's able to get back on the field at the level that he was able to play coming into the 2019 season, he could be a really interesting prospect for teams moving forward. And so that's, you know, I see him being a late round pick, obviously. I see him going in the sixth or seventh, but offering some real value to whichever team picks him up. Yeah, I think those are both really, really good selections. The other guy I was really thinking of was Kylan Hill from Mississippi State. I love his tenacity and his toughness and his ability to, make those tough yards in between the tackles. I think he'll make a team pretty happy as well, probably on 
late day two, early day three range. Certainly. Likewise, going down the list of offensive players, it's another big pool of talent is right there at the receiver position. I think this is one that might be one of the most loaded positions coming into the NFL draft this year, both with, you know, players who exhausted their eligibility and guys who are coming out early. Um, I'm almost curious how many of these guys should be coming out early. This is one where I think the field is stacked and there are going to be a couple of guys who are really disappointed where they actually end up in the draft. Um, one that really stuck out to me was Quintez Cephas from Wisconsin. Obviously, as somebody who loves the Badgers, I, I think he's absolutely talented. I don't know that necessarily he was going to benefit that much more from another season in Madison. Um, but at the same time, with how stacked this receiver class is, I, I think he's overestimating where he might end up. I agree. I think this receiver class is stacked. That's why you're seeing some really talented players go back to school. Devontae Smith from Alabama, who had a monster year, decided to come back to school. He's got a, a real chance to be a high pick next year. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a stacked class. You got guys like Quintez Cephas, who are really talented players, as we saw in the Rose Bowl, but, you know, could slide down to day three range, uh, which is really a massive difference with what they're going to end up getting paid. Some other surprising ones for me was Quez Watkins coming out from Southern Miss, uh, Tristan Jackson coming out from Syracuse. So maybe some questionable decisions in there with how just brilliant of a class this is uh, of receivers. Um, I'm really, I guess the guy I really wanted to highlight to Zach was Lynn Bowden from Kentucky. Um, just with his ability to do everything. I mean, yeah. he can literally line up anywhere. <laughs> And a smart NFL team is going to get him on day two at some point, and they're just going to let him be a weapon. You know, you don't have to line him up at receiver. You can let him take correct snaps. You can let him return kicks. He can line up in the slot or the outside. He can take handoffs. Just get the ball in Bowden's hands, and good things tend to happen, as you can see by him pretty much single-handedly leading Kentucky to an eight-win season. Yeah, Bowden is a great player that's on this list and I think because he was so versatile this year and the consummate team player willing to step up and do whatever was necessary for Kentucky to you know stick to their winning ways um another player I really like in this group is Gabe Davis at UCF um you know, he. you talked about among quarterbacks when we were talking about Jordan Love. If you're coming out from the group of five, you absolutely need to dominate your competition. Gabriel Davis is a guy who dominated his competition in the American Athletic Conference. And while it would have been lovely to see if he, you know, if he came back, what could happen with the Knights next year, he's too good a talent, um... To, to continue staying in the college ranks. He's a guy who can easily burn defenses on Sunday. So he's one I really liked coming out, and I think he's one that's going to get long looks from a lot of different teams. Yeah, and we got a couple receivers. We're talking about how deep this class is. There's a couple receivers that are going to be playing next Monday night, Justin Jefferson and T. Higgins, who are probably going to end up being part of this class. They're going to bump some of those guys down even further. Yeah, 
Exactly. And, you know, that's not even to mention guys like KJ Hamler, who's another jack of all trades on that list. Uh, so, yeah, I, this is it, bar none to me, the, the deepest group of players. And there are going to be some guys who end up being disappointed as a result. Continuing down the list of offense, we've got, uh, it looks like a half dozen tight ends so far that have declared for uh, the NFL draft. And um, I'm just wondering, is there any one of these guys who really sticks out to you? I really like Al, um, Albert Aquabonum from Missouri. I was really, I was really hoping he was going to grad transfer to Alabama last year, to be honest. Um with everything that was going on at Missouri, uh, you know, he had graduated. I was really hoping Alabama had a hole at tight end. They could convince him to come. And I wonder if he re- doesn't regret maybe exploring his options as a grad transfer because he didn't really have a big year for the Tigers. They, you know, didn't do anything much of note. Uh, you know, they obviously couldn't play in a bowl game. They really struggled uh, down the stretch of the season. So I wonder if he would have been better off exploring it, whether it was Alabama or another school that could have highlighted him in their offense a bit more. But I think he's a freakish athlete that's going to really test well. I think he's projected, you know, as probably a third-round pick or so right now. But I think he's got a shot to really jump, you know, toward the beginning of day two, if not the end of day one in the first round, just depending on how well he tests at the combine, which I think he'll do really, really well there. Yeah, I could see that being a see him being a riser on board certainly once the combine happens i also think it's interesting to see out of those six three are pack 12 tight ends so colby parkinson devin asiasi from ucla and uh, hunter bryant from washington who bryant especially i think he was one of those players that either dominated games or he was entirely absent from games for Washington. And whenever teams did neutralize him, Washington struggled. So he's obviously a player who can make a big difference as a weapon for an offense, um, both good and bad. So if teams game plan him out of the game, uh, it can have adverse effects for an offense. So, I see him as a game changer. That could be another one that has an interesting uh, future in the pros. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really solid group of of tight ends entering the NFL draft this year. I don't know if there's any, you know, superstars among the bunch that are going to come in and make um, a massive difference to offenses, but a lot of really solid guys. I think a lot of teams will be happy with who they get. Undoubtedly. Before we switch gears to defense, looking at the offensive linemen that have come out, we've got 10 guys on the board across the offensive line who are coming out early for the draft. Um, Are there any of these guys who stand out to you as somebody in NFL teams just going to absolutely salivate over? Yeah, I think both uh, Jedrick Wills and Andrew Thomas, tackles from Alabama and Georgia respectively, are guys that have the chance to go in the top five of this draft. Wills especially has seen Thomas has been a guy who, you know, from the beginning of the year we've known was going to be a, probably a top 10 pick, but Wills is a guy who's really skyrocketed up draft board. There's been a lot of talk about his tape this year, how dominant he was. He's got the benefit, you know, he was a right tackle, which sometimes hurts tackle prospects, but Wills can always say at least that he was a right tackle protecting a blind side because his quarterback was left-handed. So I think that gives him a bit of a leg up on some of the other right tackles in this class because he could easily, I think, slide over to the left side, having 
you know, the experience project, protecting Tungavailoa's blindside at Alabama. And then Thomas is, you know, just a prototypical monster who has been a really big, um, a really big player that a lot of people have been interested in. He's, he's, you know, pretty much been mocked as a top 10 pick since his recruiting three years ago. Uh, but I also like Makai Becton from Louisville. I think he's got a shot to go really, really high. So uh, I, I'm very excited. He was a really big reason for Louisville's turnaround this year with his ability to just maul people up front. Undoubtedly, yeah. All three of those guys have real first-round potential for sure. <laughs> um, I also need to give a shout-out to the two uh, group of five centers who are on the board, Keith Ismail and Matt Hennessy. I think, you know... The Aztec and the Owl both have the opportunity to, you know, be day two picks at least and um, be really good uh, centers at the NFL level. So that's uh, one I'm definitely going to be at least kind of tracking as I, I look at what happens on, on draft weekend. Let's shift gears to defense now because, you know... Um, 50 out of the 75 players that have declared early are offensive players. And we, you know, tend to put a lot of stock into to offensive guys just because they're the ones who have those sterling stats that we can look at. But the fact is, is defense is definitely a critical part to winning championships. And um, just looking at the guys who are, who have declared already, you've got some really incredible defensive talent already there available and and, you know as you mentioned when we talked about receivers we could have some more names being added to this list next week when you know the national championship game is in the books starting with the defensive line um obviously I think the biggest name on the board is Chase Young you know the Ohio State defensive end who's been, you know, he was a Heisman finalist this year. Um, That says all you need to know, especially given the Heisman Trophy's preeminence toward offensive greatness. So, um, but obviously Yeter Gross Matos from Penn State, I think also has a real good shot to be um, a big name there. I think Nick Coe from Auburn is going to... um, be a guy that a lot of teams are are looking at as well. Um, anyone else stick out for you from the uh, the list of defensive linemen that we have coming out this year? Yeah, I really like Curtis Weaver from Boise State. I think he's going to be a guy that probably goes near the end of the first round or early second round. We're going to watch him rack up 12 sacks as a rookie and be like, how the heck did this guy not go top 15? I think he's going to be a monster um, at the next level. I think he's, you know, probably going to be a team like the Patriots that ends up grabbing him in the late first round, and we're all going to be pissed off about that. So, But I also like um, Justin Matabuke, the defensive tackle from Texas A&M. Every, I don't really have a feel for where he might be projected at the moment, but every time I watch Texas A&M, it always felt like that guy was in the backfield making plays. So I don't know if he's, you know, probably more of a guy that's going to go day two, day three range. But I think he's a guy that's going to stick in the league for a little while. Yeah, he's one we've definitely talked about over the course of the year when we've handed out game balls and whatnot because he is an absolute beast there in the interior of the line for the Aggies. So I really like that you brought up Matabuke as well. 
We only have three linebackers on the board right now in terms of guys who are coming out early. Um, Willie Gabe Jr. from Mississippi State, uh, Oklahoma's Kenneth Murray, and Utah State's David Woodward. Um, I found it interesting to see Woodward coming out, um, and, you know, like Love, it's one of those things where does another year at the Mountain West level necessarily help him out in, uh, in building up his draft stock. Uh, but at, at the same time, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what kind of stealing he has. Obviously, I don't think even if he came back next year, he wasn't going to be a first day kind of pick, but I think he's somebody who could give real value um, for a team that's willing to, to take a chance on a, you know, a group of five linebacker like that. Yeah, I think it's a pretty weak linebacker class, to be honest with you, uh, particularly with Alabama's Dylan Moses. Even with the injury concerns, probably would have snuck into the end of the first round just because it's not a really strong in, uh, linebacker class. But him returning to Alabama, I think, really hurt this class overall. Kenneth Murray from Oklahoma, probably your top linebacker in this class. Uh, he's He's a freak. I mean, you see him yeah. just running – the true sideline to sideline guy, missile into the backfield. I, I was, he had a monster season for the Sooners. It was a big reason that at least the perception was for most of the year that Oklahoma's defense had taken a pretty major stride. Whether that was the case, LSU kind of uh, put that into doubt, I would say, in the bowl game. But um, I think he's a really good player. I like Woodward a lot, too. I think he's a guy who has a real shot to end up going in the second round. So I think he's probably smart to come out now. Definitely. Shifting to the back end of the defense, uh, let's look a bit at the secondary. I know we've got three safeties on the board. The biggest name, obviously, is Xavier McKinney from Alabama. Um, no, I, I'm not really shocked that he's on that board right now. Um, did you have a sense that there was any chance he would be coming back to Tuscaloosa, John? There was most of the talk that I had seen, Zach, was that he was going to come back to Alabama, but then the advisory board gave him a first-round grade, and that's what tipped his, you know, tipped the scales for him to go. And, you know, obviously if you get a first-round grade, it's hard to hard to really say that you should come back to school for another year because there's not a huge benefit. So it's totally understandable. It makes sense that he would make the leap. Um, and, you know, this is a safety class that's still waiting on Grant Delpit to make a decision from LSU. Um, and surely he'll be a part of this class as well after the national championship game. So that'll be a big addition. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought all year McKinney was going to go pro, but there was a lot of talk about him potentially coming back to Alabama in recent weeks. Uh, but I, that first round grade was really tough to pass on. Yeah. It, it, and that's the thing for me, I look at players like McKinney and I, as you said, what benefit do you get from coming back? Obviously, there's, you know, you're playing with a team. This is a team sport, so you do have the opportunity to come and win another championship to to get Alabama back to the top of the mountain. Um, but at the same time, you're doing that as a very underpaid asset of the university versus being able to start capitalizing on your talent. So... You know, as you said in that instance, especially if you have a chance to get a first-round payday, do it. Because you never, you know, you never know when your career has the possibility of ending entirely. 
And, uh, you know, we've talked about that with other players that have been injured and, um, the, the the risk is always there when you're playing football. So it's better to have that risk happening when you're collecting a paycheck for it. Yeah, most, most certainly. But I, I think this is a, a pretty good class at DBs. Um, I love Jeff Okuda at the top. I think he's as good of a, a cornerback prospect as we've seen in years. One of the reasons I was really hoping Ohio State would beat Clemson um, was that I was really excited to see Ohio State's cornerbacks matched up against LSU's receivers particularly seeing Akuda going against either Jamar Chase or Justin Jefferson, I think would have been just an incredible matchup. I'm also really curious to see what happens with C.J. Henderson from Florida in the pre-draft process, because this is a guy who, at the beginning of the season, was thought of as the number one cornerback prospect in the country. Didn't have a bad year at Florida, but didn't have the you know all-world, all-American year that a lot of people expected out of him and his stocks kind of slipped a little bit as a result. He's more looking at late first round, maybe early second round range when he was, you know, coming into the year, a guy that a lot of people mocked in the top 10 at the beginning of the season. So I'll be interested to see what happens to him in the pre-draft process. I'll definitely have my eyes on that. Certainly. Um, A couple of other names I love among those cornerbacks. Uh, Jalon Johnson at Utah was a, a huge reason why Utah was even in the college football playoff discussion uh, heading into the Pac-12 championship game. Obviously that, you know, for whatever, you know, for what actually happened in the championship game and in their bowl game against Texas, that detracts in no way from what Johnson actually brings to the table. And I think of the two Utah cornerbacks that are coming out, he's got far greater potential than Javelin Gidry. Um, Although both of them are quite talented at their position. Um, I also like Harrison Hand, the Temple cornerback. Um, You know, he's not a guy that's going to be necessarily on everybody's radar, given that he played at the group of five level. But Temple played a lot of really good teams this season. And Hand had... uh, had good games against a lot of really solid receivers throughout the AAC. And I think he's one that could also get a, a, a long look at least on day two. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's not a guy that has had a lot of talk, but he's a guy who made plays all season long. Yep. Well, on that note, everybody, we're going to take one more quick break. And when we come back, it's time to talk about the national championship. So stay tuned. Welcome back for our final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. On January 13th, coming up this Monday, we have Clemson squaring off against LSU for the College Football Playoff National Championship. The Duel of the Tigers happening there in New Orleans at the Mercedes-Benz Superdome is one of the best that we've seen since the beginning of the college football playoff, I think. Uh, This is one that especially just matches up teams that it's a lot of strength versus strength when you kind of go down the, the ratings for both of these teams and look at where they land, both offensively and defensively. So I think if there's one overarching narrative in this game, for me, it, it, it's got to be um, what's going to give 
in these battles with uh, two teams that are really just good across the board in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, this is just as hyped of a, a national championship matchup as last year's Alabama-Clemson game. Clemson became the first team to go 15-0 and in whatever 100 years or whatever it was. Now we got, we're going to have a second straight year where a team goes 15-0, and whether that's Clemson again this year or whether LSU takes the throne. So very, very impressive matchup. Two really, really good teams that, you know, I think it's, they're pretty evenly matched, Zach. If you look at the, the statistics, you got two offenses that are that have shown all season that they can score on pretty much anyone. Um, you've got two defenses who, you know, that are very opportunistic at least that'll, you know, try to, that can take the ball away or a lot of talent on both sides of the football, I think. So a ton of talent in this game. We'll probably be looking back in a few years at all the NFL players that were ultimately in this game. Uh, and you've also got the quarterback battle that's at the center stage, right? You've got the Heisman Trophy winner and Joe Burrow, who's likely to be the number one pick in 2020. And you've got the likely number one pick in 2021 and Trevor Lawrence. So that's the matchup that everyone's come to see. Oh, yeah. Un- yeah, there's no doubt about that. That's the, the star power coming into this game. At the same time, that was supposed to be the storyline coming into the semifinal between LSU and Oklahoma with uh, Burrow against Jalen Hurts. And that ultimately turned into something of a dud. So um, I think the big thing here is Clemson just can beat you in so many different ways. Um, You know, Trevor Lawrence showed off his, his wheels in, in the semifinal game, Travis Etienne obviously can beat you both running and catching the ball out of the backfield. Um, we talked about it in the previous segment, the the wealth of talent they have at receiver that's probably going to be playing in the NFL on Sundays sooner rather than later. And the thing Clemson has that Oklahoma did not is a defense. And that's really like the matchup that I'm most excited to see. You have the top scoring offense in the country in LSU. You know, they're averaging just under seven touchdowns a game, um, which, you know, coincidentally is how many Burrow threw for against Oklahoma in the first half of that semifinal at the Peach Bowl. Um, But he's going against a Clemson team that ranks number one in the country, allowing only 11.5 points per game. Um, And it's not just that, you know, LSU averages 564 yards a game. Clemson only allows 264 yards a game. So, again, like I said at the beginning, something's got to give here. These, you know, this matchup of just strength versus strength, is, is going to, to fall one way or the other. And Burrow's taking on a team that's, um, you know, in terms of pass efficiency defense, is holding teams to a pass efficiency rating under 100 each game on average. 96.3 to be specific. You know, when, you're, when your pass efficiency rating reads lower than your temperature, you've got some issues and that's what Clemson does to teams better than anybody else. So I think that's the duel more than anything that I'm really excited to see here. Yeah. I, you know, it's going to be 
really interesting. You have two of the top assistants in the country matching wits when you've got that. You've got Joe Brady against Brent Venables. You know, and we saw in uh, in the Fiesta Bowl, Ohio State had several opportunities to deliver a knockout blow to Clemson early in that game, right? You know, they broke out to a 16 to nothing lead, but they had to settle for three field goals in the red zone. So I think that's an area that will be really interesting. If Clemson opens themselves up to those potential knockout blows like they did against Ohio State, I don't think LSU is going to miss. That's the difference in those teams. This is an LSU offense that's number one in the country in red zone, uh, red zone efficiency offense. They, you know, score 97% of their possessions down there. They score a ton of touchdowns. If Clemson is bending like they bent defensively against Ohio State, um, I just don't see them being able to stop LSU when they get down there just with as ruthlessly efficient as Burrow's been all year, as good as Clyde edwards elair has been out of the backfield, and just as talented of receivers as the Bengal Tigers boast on that side. So I wonder, you know, I to me, I fully expect LSU to get out to a pretty quick start. Usually the advantage is on the offense when you have this much time to prepare the game plan. Uh, so I expect uh, Joe Brady, Steve Ensminger, um, and Ed Orgeron to come up with a, a really good game plan that gets LSU off to a quick start. So I think really where it lies on this side of the ball, Zach, is going to be the adjustments that Venables makes. Um, and he made some brilliant ones against Ohio State a couple of weeks ago in the Fiesta Bowl that really turned that game because after they gave up those 16 points, they only gave up one more touchdown the rest of the game, really allowed um, Clemson's offense to stay in it, despite the fact that Clemson really struggled on offense early in that game. It allowed them to stay in it, because that game could have easily been 24-28 nothing Buckeyes at a certain point, and then you're just not being able, you're not going to battle back from that against a team of Ohio State's caliber. Clemson's not going to battle back from that kind of deficit against LSU either, so they better come to play quicker than they came against the Buckeyes, or this game could get away from them very early. Yeah, this is I, I, I think that's really the the biggest thing there is does Clemson keep it close early? Because we've seen throughout the season for Clemson, once they get warmed up, it, it, there are few teams that can keep up with with uh Davos team. At the same time, it does take them a little while to warm up. They're like a diesel engine in that regard. Once you get it going, it just hums and hums and hums. But, you know, if you're starting it cold, it takes that moment. And um, how far do they get behind before that that switch flips for them? Luckily, against a team like LSU, yes, that defense looked really good against Oklahoma, at the same time, the LSU defense hasn't always looked great throughout this season. And if there's any player who has the combination of experience and weapons around him to exploit a defense like that, it's definitely Trevor Lawrence. Um, for as maligned as he's been this year, um, you know, obviously Clemson is middle of the road when it comes to interceptions that they've thrown. Uh and they're going up against a defense that's top five in the country in terms of, of picks. So it, it, it really, one, falls incumbent on, on Lawrence to protect the football, to not make stupid mistakes and think that he can fit the ball into tight windows because this is a Bayou Bengals defense that can really exploit that. 
but at the same time, it, as long as he isn't trying to force things too much and be too much of a gunslinger, this is also an LSU defense that gives away a fair number of yards and points, at least in terms of teams when you're looking at a championship-level team. So that's, you know, I, I, I think those are, again, strength versus strength. And in this instance, Clemson's offense is that little bit stronger than LSU's defense, where when you're looking at it inversely, you can't say the same thing necessarily about Burrow and the crew versus the guys that are stacked up for Clemson on the other side of the ball. Yeah, that's fair. I think a a big part of it's going to come down to third downs. One of the most impressive things from Trevor Lawrence last year against Alabama in the national title game was that he was just unbelievably brilliant on third downs. I think Clemson finished the game like 10 of 14 or 10 of 15 on third downs last year. So Alabama would get the Tigers backed up and Lawrence would deliver a bullet throw to, you know, T Higgins or Justin Ross or someone like that to convert. And, you know, much like that this year, Clemson's converting 46 and a half percent of their third downs. LSU's defense has only given up 30% of third downs. So it'll be interesting when that gets to third down, if LSU can pin their ears back, if they can get after the quarterback. They haven't done that great this year, and Clemson hasn't allowed a lot of pressure and sacks on Lawrence this season. But if, you know, Calavon Chason and some of those guys can get after Lawrence and make him uncomfortable, then maybe that's what it'll take to maybe allow, maybe force Lawrence into one of those mistakes that we've seen him make a couple of times this season. On the other side, when you look at um, pressure, Clemson really gets after the quarterback. LSU doesn't particularly protect Burrow that great sometimes. Burrow's really good at extending plays and making Houdini-like escapes from the pocket. We saw it against Oklahoma um, a couple of weeks ago when he had that play where he held the ball for 12 seconds or whatever it was and ran out of the pocket and delivered a throw. Clemson's defense isn't going to let him out that way, though. He's not going to have that much time to throw no. against him. Clemson's 15th in the country in sacks per game. LSU gives up over two sacks per game, which ranks 71 or 71st in the country. So it'll be interesting. Can LSU protect Burrow? Can LSU get after Lawrence? I think the, if the answer to those both of those questions are yes, then LSU wins this game. If they're both no, then I think Clemson probably ends up coming out on top. Yeah, I I think that's a really fair point to be making. Um, The other thing I'd like to bring up is penalties. You know, penalties obviously play a huge role in any game. And when you look at these two teams, they're really not that far apart. You know, LSU took only four more penalties over the course of the season to date than Clemson has. But the thing is, is they've lost nearly 200 more yards to those penalties. They're, you know, they're losing 58 plus yards per game to flags versus Clemson only giving away 44. And I think, you know, if if that continues to form, LSU's the type of team where oftentimes the only opponent that has any chance of beating them is themselves. And if they don't play a disciplined game against a team like Clemson, Clemson will bite them in the ass for it. They they will not hesitate to take full advantage of that. And I think that's one thing we'll need to watch out is where do the flags fly? Um, and then also, 
I'd be remiss not to talk about special teams because, um, you know, I, I, I think this is one where, especially in terms of uh, kickoff returns um, and even punt returns, but neither one of these teams is, has absolutely been, like, mind-blowing when it comes to, you know, punt returns and whatnot. LSU has a better chance of making waves on uh, when the, if they can hold Clemson to to a punting situation, but Clemson does much better flipping the field position on kick returns, and LSU has not been good about covering them this year. Basically, it, it's almost dead level. Clemson averages twenty one point nine five yards per kickoff return. LSU gives up twenty one point nine three. So. You got to figure Clemson's going to get 22 yards each time the ball's kicked to them. <laughs> Just the way those trends go. Um, and at the same time, Clemson is much better at defending on kick returns than, than LSU. Just bar none. They're one of the top 15 units in the country in kick return defense, giving up 17 and a half. And I, I think... Where teams end up and how the field position battle ends up is also going to have a huge role in deciding this. And that really comes down to special teams and to penalties. And so that's one that I really want to want to keep my eye on as we're watching this game on Monday night because that, that'll have a huge impact. Obviously, with LSU, they've benefited throughout the season from getting shorter fields, from getting turnovers, getting those opportunistic moments. And they're, they're not going to find it as easy to get that against Clemson, I don't think. Yeah, the hidden yards in a game like this, that's really two teams that are really evenly matched is always so important. You know, LSU's been really bad defending kicks and punts this year. They're next to last in the country in punt return defense. We've seen them giving up big returns. Uh, they give up almost 17 yards per punt return this year, and their net punting average is only 38 yards. So that could be a huge difference in the game right there, too. Clemson doesn't normally do a lot with punt returns, but if they could manufacture a big play, first of all, you've got to get LSU to punt. That's been very difficult for yeah. teams all season long. But if you can get LSU to punt, there's opportunities in the return game to really make something happen. Yeah, and, and I think that's... Uh, obviously, as you said, they're they're working with a smaller sample size than a lot of teams because when you average 49 points a game, you're not kicking the ball back to the other team that often um, until you're doing it off the tee on a kickoff. Right. But that... even, even then, when they kick off the ball, like I said, they're 91st in the country in kickoff right. return defense. So they they score a lot of points but they also set up other teams in good position to punch back if you have an offense that can actually punch back right and Clemson certainly does that's for sure yep. Zach what player out there you know we all, we talk about Joe Burrow we talk about Trevor Lawrence we talk a lot about T Higgins Justin Ross Justin Jefferson Jamar Chase those kind of guys but what player on either team do you think's the biggest x factor in this game who might be able to you know, steal, force a turnover or steal a touchdown or, or make a play that could end up being the difference in this game? You know, the guy I really like is Derek Stingley Jr. for LSU. I, I think he, you know, he's one of the four best players in the country in terms of passes defensed. He, he, he defend, he'll knock down 
at least 1.5 passes per game. Uh, and I think he's, you know, he's top 10 in interceptions in the country. Uh, and I think he's going to be the player that will determine how well, like, is Trevor Lawrence forced to run for 100 or more yards again this game to keep Clemson in the game? And if LSU can shut down his passing lanes and, you know, force him to throw balls into tight windows, we've seen he, he'll totally do that. He's willing to do that. And he's damn good at it. But a player like Stingley can really step in and wreak havoc on the best laid plans. And I think he's one that could easily have a pick six that turns this game. Yeah, I think that's a great pick. Already one of the best corners in the country. It's just a true freshman. It's kind of mind-blowing. The guy for me actually went on the other, um, on the Clemson side of things on defense, Isaiah Simmons, the Mm. linebacker slash hybrid safety that they employ. I think he's so important in this game because of what LSU does on offense. They like to, you know, hit the quick passing game, the slants and stuff like that. They like to go over the top. And Simmons is a guy where you can line up in the middle and he can hold up against the run. He can hold up as a linebacker. But he can also drop back and be comfortable playing center field as the only safety back. Yeah. So, you know, we saw some creative ways that Venables put him out there in the last game against Ohio State leading to uh, a rare Justin Fields interception in that game. Only uh, ended up throwing two in that game, but just the second of the year at that point of of that contest. So I think it'll be interesting how Clemson decides to utilize him. I think you'll probably see him dropping back into coverage more in this game because LSU is going to be looking to hit the passing game as much as they can because I think it'll be tough to run on Clemson. Uh, So they'll be looking to, you know, ride Joe Burrow like they've done all year. So if Simmons can jump a passing lane or bait Burrow into a throw and make a play, force a turnover or something like that. I mean, one turnover in a game like this could be all it takes to flip the script. Undoubtedly. Simmons is going to be a critical player in terms of, of how this game ends up. And, I, you know, that leads me to, to bring up one other player. You mentioned Jamar Chase. You mentioned Justin Jefferson. But I think Terrace Marshall Jr. could be the, the sort of linchpin in terms of how this game goes. Because Clemson is going to be looking to stop Chase and Jefferson from beating them on the back end. You know, those two are obviously the biggest threats that Burrow has. We saw what Jefferson could do in the Peach Bowl when he had four touchdowns before halftime. And, uh, but I think Marshall's going to be one of those players. We saw, obviously, that he's really damn good as well and can beat defenses. And because there are so many weapons that you have to account for, I think Marshall's going to be the one that has the best chance to slip through the cracks. Yeah, uh, definitely. That just speaks to the talent LSU's got at the position. Um I really like that. I think Clyde Edwards-Elair for LSU is another player who could quietly have a huge impact on this game, despite the fact that he might struggle to find a lot of running room on the ground. But getting him healthy, uh, they used him more as a decoy against Oklahoma, but the extra you know, couple of weeks of rest, he should be good to go. He's a guy who's going to catch passes out of the backfield. He might get some of those hidden yards, just those runs that, you know, they don't look big in the stat sheet when you're getting three, four, five yards. But those are the runs that can kind of maybe pull Isaiah Simmons up 
more to try to defend the running game, and that might allow LSU to hit some shots down the field as well. Totally. Yeah, it will be really critical to see how healthy Edward Tealer looks in this game. And I think we'll see that within the first, you know, five minutes of gameplay, ten minutes of gameplay. Basically, once LSU, by the time LSU is on their second series, we're going to have a good idea of how much of an impact he'll have in this game. And I think if he is back at full speed and, and at his rumbling, bumbling best, he's got a chance to flip this game very much so. Well, is there, uh, are there any other factors that stand out to you, John, in this game? Um, not really. I think we've hit on pretty much everything. I'm kind of amped up to hear who you think is going to come out on top. Yeah, I mean, looking at the line on this, uh, the way the lines have, have risen and fallen, looking at them at Action Network, I'm, uh, you know, it opened with LSU uh, as a four-and-a-half-point favorite. They've been bet up to a five-and-a-half-point favorite at this point. And I think it's closer than that. I, I think this is, you know, we saw obviously last year a national championship game that, that sort of got out of hand quickly. And I think that's what a lot of people, the way they saw LSU play against Oklahoma, are expecting at this point from Ed Orgeron's team. Clemson's been here too many times before, though. And, you know, we talked about that with Oklahoma being the more experienced team, but they were the more experienced team as a team that lost year after year in the college football playoff. That that ain't the case for Clemson. And so I think Dabo's team wins this one by a late score. I, I really do. I think this is one, and I think it's going to be an absolute shootout. I think this is one where you could see it go, you know, like 41-38 at the very end. And I could see it easily going LSU's way that way as well. But I think it stays within a field goal, and I think it's a late score that turns this game. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really, really close. I think these are two really evenly matched teams. Uh, it's hard to bet against Clemson just because they haven't lost in so long. Trevor Lawrence has really never had to to doubt himself in any of these situations because he's always come through and always won pretty much his entire life. So that's uh, that's interesting as well. It's hard to bet against a guy who's undefeated as a starting quarterback in college football almost two full years in. Uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I just think this LSU team's just – they just feel like a team of destiny to me this year. You know, they've faced adversity, they've overcome it, and they've just been so good. I think they've hit their stride at the perfect time. You know, defensively early in the year, there was a lot of concerns about uh, many factors on if this was a championship-level defense. But I think in recent weeks, what they are able to do against Oklahoma, what they did to Georgia in the SC Championship game, I think showed that that defense has risen to championship level. And when you got an offense that's this freaking good, you don't have to necessarily have an elite defense to get you there. But I think LSU's defense can be an elite in enough moments. I think this game is going to be super close. I think five and a half is a little too much. I went uh, LSU 38, Clemson 34. So I, I think it'll be one where either Burrow's got a shot to win the game and delivers, or maybe Lawrence has a shot to, to lead Clemson down the field and maybe comes up a little short. 
So, so yeah, basically you're seeing Clemson running out of time and I'm seeing them getting that ball one last time is basically, is basically what this score, the scores that we just listed sound like. So either way, you're going to get a really good close game, everybody. And, uh, either way, bet Clemson's way against the spread is what it sounds like for both of us. Um, and, you know, it sounds like we're also seeing this as a uh, high-scoring game. So so think about that when you're betting total, total points as well. On that note, thanks for tuning in again, everybody. Um, we'll be back with you next week to uh, clean up the aftermath of this national championship game we just broke down for you. And uh, to to wrap up everything else and pack the grill away for the rest of the 2020 or the 2019 season and to get you ready for uh, the long off season before we see 2020. Thanks again, John. It's always a pleasure getting to talk with you. Absolutely. Looking forward to, to watching this one. And I'm, I hope we get the classic that we're shooting for. You and me both, and I hope for all your sake out there, everybody, that whichever way you're rooting, or if, like both of us, you have no horse in this race and you're just watching for fun, um, that we get a hell of a final game to this 2019 season uh, as we celebrate 150 years of college football for the last time before we start gearing up for 151. For now, at the Saturday Blitz Podcast, I'm Zach Bogalki, as always here with John Mitchell. It's a pleasure getting to talk to you all. Have a wonderful Wednesday.